I now invite Tim Geiger forward to preach the word to us and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. If you don't know uh, my name, it is, as Casey mentioned, Tim Geiger, and I served for a short time as interim pastor uh, of Third Reformed about a year and a half ago, and uh, it is good to be back with you again this morning. This morning's text is Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17, and that is on pages 496 and 497 in your pew Bibles. It'll also be on the screen, I think, if you'd like to follow along. And let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is true in every respect, and that it's timeless. We thank you, Lord, that it has power in and of itself, because it is your word, but it also has power because you, Holy Spirit, bring it alive in our lives and write it on on our hearts. And that's what we pray for this morning, that you, Holy Spirit, would make your word applicable 
to particular areas in our lives where we struggle with sin and unbelief. Lord, give us grace that we would know you better and love you more. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've been around Third Reformed for a while, I may have shared this uh, information with you, but uh, I grew up in a Lutheran church. And uh, back in the Lutheran church in the 1970s, the, the style of church that we experienced back then would be what we would call kind of high church today, or what we called back then Catholic light. So, did anyone here spend time in a Catholic church? Okay, quite, quite a few of you. So, you, may, maybe you can appreciate a little bit what uh, Catholic light is. I, I guess it's all of the ceremony without half the guilt. Um, but one of the practices in which we engaged uh, back in that little Lutheran church was using the Roman Catholic convention of calling people who had been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as saints. For example, prior to the reading from nearly any New Testament book, the the reading would be announced as coming from the gospel according to St. Matthew, uh, for example. But in the Reformed faith, which this church professes, we acknowledge different practice. Although the Lord does call some men and women to, to unique and extraordinary uh, devotion and, and prominence, we don't venerate those people in a particular way as saints. Rather, we believe that Scripture teaches in what we call the sainthood of all believers. In other words, everyone who is elect, that is, everyone who is called to faith and repentance in Christ Jesus and who is washed and made new and regenerated in his blood, is a saint. Where do we get this from? Uh, where, where does this doctrine originate? Well, there's nowhere in Scripture where the Lord specifically names the elect as saints, at least not that I'm aware, but the Apostle Paul does so many, many times, and he usually does it in the introductions to many of his letters uh, to, the, to the church. He does it in Romans. He does it in First and Second Corinthians, in Ephesians and Philippians, and... Colossians and Philemon. And there are also many uses of the term saint to refer to God's covenant people in the Old Testament, primarily in Psalms. But what exactly is a saint? Well, the Bible wasn't written in English. Um, It was written primarily in Hebrew in the Old Testament, and the New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And the Greek word for saint is hagios. Hagios. And it means to set apart to or or be set apart by God. So it, it means to make something holy or for God to declare something holy. Uh, one online lexicon says that its core meaning is different. It's it's unique, it stands out. It's unlike anything around it. And it says that for the believer, hagios means the likeness of nature with the Lord uh, is upon us because we are different from the world. We, We are the likeness of God in the world. 
And it's interesting that uh, I, I was listening to uh, a podcast uh, called The Bible Project uh, this past week, and uh, one of the things that they're talking about is the, the image of God. And if you remember back in Genesis, when God is mankind, what does he say? He says that um, the, the, the man and the woman are made in the likeness of God. But in Hebrews, the, the, the uh, beginning part of the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ isn't made in the image of God. Christ is what? He is the likeness of God. Meaning that Jesus Christ is God himself. And we are his likeness. We, we are copies, if, if you, it's a bad analogy, but we're copies of him. The temple in Jerusalem, going back to, to Hagios, the temple in Jerusalem, says uh, Bible commentator William Barclay, was Hagios, or holy, because it was different from other buildings. The, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.17 that we, the church, are now God's temple, and that we are holy, or Hagios, because we're different from the world. And what he means there is that we're set apart because, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, in Christ we have become the righteousness of God. So the saints aren't only those who belong to Christ and have passed from this life into glory or, or, or people who have done some uh, remarkable work in the past. The saints are also all of those people who are alive now on earth, who profess Christ and who have been washed by his blood. And that's the population to whom Paul wrote in the first century, and it's also the population to whom the psalmist wrote, obviously before uh, the coming of Christ in Old Testament times, as Old Testament saints looked forward to that um, salvation which had yet to occur. Just as Paul wrote words of lament and truth and encouragement in the first century to the New Testament saints, Psalm 90, our, our text today, is a prayer used in Old Testament worship that expressed those same sentiments, lament and truth and encouragement to Old Testament saints. Psalm 90 is an Old Testament epistle of sorts to God's people of old. It talks about the difficulties of life in a fallen world. It acknowledges God is the only hope that the saints have. And it's a prayer through which the Old Testament saints were drawn to God and received encouragement and hope. Psalm 90 is an encouragement to saints of old as well as to us this morning to live well in the hope of the Lord, a life well lived. And so we'll look at the psalm under three headings, God's eternal nature, man's fallen nature, and then man's redeemed nature. God's eternal nature, man's fallen nature, and man's redeemed nature. First, uh, God's eternal nature, which focuses specifically on verses 1 and 2. Psalm 90 begins with a, a testimony to God's eternal faithfulness and his covenant faithfulness in God's people. 
And although the psalm is attributed to Moses, many commentators believe that it was written much later, possibly during uh, the post-exilic period uh, in the 5th or 6th century B.C. And so that means after uh, a remnant of Israel had returned to Jerusalem uh, and had begun to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. It's likely attributed to Moses because it is the style of prayer that Moses would have prayed. The Jews of the post-exilic period returned to a land that had been ruined by sentence of, of judgment from God as well as destruction from Babylon in the early 6th century B.C. Uh, I also preach um, at Liberty Northeast Church, which meets here uh, right before this service does. And we just finished up a summer series on the book of Amos. And Amos, if you've ever read through it, is nine chapters of judgment against God's people for their rebellion and their sin and the fact that they repeatedly forsake, uh, forsook uh, God's love for them and God's relationship with them and chose to live uh, idolatrous and self-serving lives. And uh, Amos is a difficult book to read also because just of the, the graphic nature of the, the pronouncement of God's judgment against his people. Uh, God through the prophet, talks very specifically about the ways in which the, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be crushed and ground up and utterly destroyed. And the beginning of, of chapter 9, the last chapter of the book, actually begins with God saying through the prophet, there are dead bodies everywhere. So this, this is a, a, a complete destruction uh, to the land that was originally given to God's people as a sign of his faithful love. And so, as the Jews returned to this land uh, in the 5th and 6th centuries BC, they needed a reminder that the covenant God made with his people was still in force, and that God was present with his people in the land, even though so much was different. Maybe you can relate to that yourself. Maybe in your own life there have been changes. Maybe uh, relationships are broken. Or people whom you love have died. Or are sick. Maybe children have rebelled. Maybe financial circumstances are different. Uh, maybe any number of things have happened and you need that reminder. You need that ongoing testimony that even though God seems far away, He's yet closer than he feels. And so in Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2 remind the worshiper that God has been the dwelling place or, or the refuge. In, in Hebrew, the language in which Psalm 90 was originally written, the word translated dwelling place there is actually help. The noun help. God has been our help of the faithful throughout all generations of humanity. Verse 2 in particular points to the fact that God existed long before he brought anything that exists into being. Even Judah's mountains on which Abraham gazed 15 centuries before this psalm was probably written are infinitely young when compared to the God who made them. The God 
who had determined to call his people to himself before the earth or those people even existed. What a comfort these words must have been to a people who had returned to a land that their parents and grandparents saw ruined as the result of the collective faithfulness of the people of Israel. I'm sorry, faithlessness of the people of Israel. The psalm isn't stuck in time. It had one meaning for its original audience 2,500 years ago, but it's just as meaningful, if not more so, to us today. We all live in a world that has been ruined by sin, and we face the consequences of our own sin, and we're forced to live with the consequences of the sin of people all around us. We live in a world which is utterly broken by sin. The Jews were returning to a land that had been uh, literally destroyed. And our buildings are still standing. Um, There's still roads to drive on. There's still stores to go and buy groceries in. But you can't walk outside of your own house. You can't even wake up in the morning without being abundantly aware of the fallenness and, and the, the brokenness of everything in us and around us. Paul tells us in Romans 8.22 that all of creation is literally groaning because of the effects of sin upon it. And again, maybe you feel that this morning. And how might it help you to fall back into the arms of a faithful father who knows your pain and wants to offer you his comfort? What might it look for you to consider God as your dwelling place, your refuge, your help, as the saints of old did? Our second point, man's fallen nature, focuses on the the middle part of the psalm. Verses 3 through 11 are a bitter lament of God's people. The, The psalmist gives voice to the collective cry of God's people. Listen to the metaphors that the psalmist uses and see if any of them might come close to the ways that you've felt about God. The psalmist says in verse 3, you return man to dust. What good is the dust or dirt that we pick up outside? We, we try to get rid of it. We spend a lot of time trying to clean our, our homes. We, we spend a lot of time trying to clean it off ourselves. We wash it down the sewer. But this is what it seems you think man is worth, God. You return him to dust, the dust from which it was created. In verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past. Have you ever tried to follow a single object on the side of the road with your eyes when you're in a car that's moving past at 70 miles an hour? It's impossible to see it as anything but a, but a streak or a blur. The psalmist says that it feels like God doesn't see us or pay attention to us any more than he would a blade of grass on the side of the road. We're insignificant. Verses 5 and 6, the psalmist compares us with parched grass in the desert. In the morning, the, the dew refreshes it and it's new, but the sun and the heat of the day makes it wilt and dry up. And it's of no use. We have a bunch of plants on our front porch. Uh, and uh, those, 
the, the, our front porch gets direct sun all afternoon. And if I don't go out and water those plants every single day in the summer, uh, within a day or two, they're all dead. And that's the way that sin impacts us. We wilt. Our hearts wither. And we quickly lose our beauty. And then verses 7 through 11, the psalmist talks about the reality of our sin and the fact that our sin, even the sin about which no other human being knows, makes God intensely angry. The secret sin that he talks about. Have you ever been ashamed, so ashamed that you wanted to run away and hide? That's the kind of exposure that the psalmist is talking about this morning. And the psalmist talks about the consequences of sin too. He says in verse 10 that we spend our lives in toil and trouble. Is that what your life seems like at times? Toil and trouble brought on by your own sin or even by the sin of the people around you? Or just the brokenness of the world in general? As I mentioned earlier, verses 3 through 11 are a, a bitter lament. And they're a bitter lament because the psalmist here is feeling just the, the overwhelming burden, the weight of sin. A burden that was foretold to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the book of Genesis. And if you're not familiar with the events of the story, Adam and Eve were the first people created by God. And they had everything. They had a perfect world, a perfect relationship With God, God used to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the evening and talk with them and teach them and uh, I would imagine touch them. And they knew his love. There was no sin in creation. Nothing died. Nothing wore out. Nothing got old. Nothing went wrong. God gave Adam and Eve a single command to follow. In Genesis 2.17, he said... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, you shall not eat. For in the day... So Paul Tripp, who is a Christian counselor, a pastor, tells the story of his son, who as a toddler was told not to touch the electric outlets in the house. And Paul Tripp, uh, Tripp rather, said that his son... Uh, just could not stay away from those outlets. Paul would be sitting there reading his newspaper, uh, and uh, he would see his son over on one side of the room, and he would pull down his newspaper, and the son would immediately run over and just try to fiddle with the outlet because he couldn't stay away from it. The one thing that he was told not to touch is the one thing he was drawn to. Similarly, in the fullness of time, first Adam, I'm sorry, first Eve, and then Adam was deceived. And ate the fruit of the tree which God had forbidden them to eat. They sinned. And there were consequences. Definite consequences to their sin. Everything began to fall apart. Look with me uh, in Genesis. If you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Psalms. And flip over to Genesis chapter 3 to see some of the effects of the fall. It's on pages 2 and 3 in your uh, Pew Bibles. And we're not going to read these. We're just going to kind of 
fly by them at a pretty high level, but in Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8, Adam and Eve experienced shame. First they hid from one another and they hid from God. Shame is a, a unique emotion where we want to hide because we're aware that we have done something for which other people will criticize us or condemn us. And then down in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, God says that humanity would be in a spiritual war from that point on with the serpent, with Satan. And in verse 16, God says that childbearing and even raising children would become a painful experience. Also in verse 16, that the marriage relationship, and by extension, all human relationships would become uh, contentious and full of pain. In Genesis 3, 17 and 18, God says that the very earth itself would be cursed because of sin. And the labor to which men and women set their hands would from then on be difficult and fraught with problems. In verse 19, human bodies will deteriorate and die and will... Uh, even as uh, Psalm 90 says, will return to the dust from which they were created. In verses 22 uh, through 24, Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden and their relationship with God was forever changed. Some pretty hard stuff. Those are a lot of consequences of sin. In Romans 5.12, Paul tells us that sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, when our first parents sinned, they developed a sin nature. And it's a sin nature which we have inherited from them. It's easy to look at them and say, well, if it hadn't been for Adam and Eve, then we wouldn't have all this mess. We'd still have a perfect relationship with God, wouldn't we? But no. Because Adam and Eve were were in a situation where they already had everything perfectly provided for them. They already had a perfect relationship with God. And just like that toddler who couldn't stay away from the electric outlet, they wanted something which they thought God wasn't uh, providing to them. They wanted power. They wanted glory. They wanted freedom from accountability. And so, those are the same things that we all would go after as well. We're just not content with what the Lord has given to us. A pastor named Timothy Keller, who passed away a few months ago, uh, often described the effects of sin as causing all things to disintegrate. Just as fire breaks down the molecular bonds of a piece of wood and literally disintegrates it, breaks apart the, the molecules, so our work and our relationships, and our world, and our own bodies are disintegrated by the effects of sin. And this is the reality against which the writer of Psalm 90 cries out. How long, he cries, how long will we suffer under the effects of your wrath? 
under the penalty of the curse for sin. How long indeed? That brings us to the final point to man's redeemed nature in uh, verses 12 through 17. The final part of the psalm is a plea for God to reverse the effects of the curse for sin that were levied in Genesis 3. Look at it with me in verse 12. This, we're back in Psalm 90 now. In verse 12, uh, the psalmist says, Our lives are, so, are short, so teach us wisdom that we would be able to number our days wisely and not selfishly or hopelessly. In verses 13 and 14, Lord, restore your close, intimate relationship with us so that we would experience your steadfast love and rejoice in your presence. In verse 15, Lord, please relieve the suffering that we experience every day. In verse 16, let us see your power actively at work in redeeming us and protecting us and continue redeeming and restoring us for all generations that our children and future generations would see it. And in verse 17, bless us and cause us to thrive and take away the curse on our labor. May what we do with our hands be blessed by you to endure forever. Essentially what the psalmist asks for in Psalm 90 is that all which has been disintegrated by sin would be reintegrated that all which had been broken would be restored, that death itself would be reversed. The psalmist never lived to see this prayer answered. And perhaps another reason Psalm 90 is entitled, uh, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, is that just as Moses waited for 40 years and could see the land of promise, but would never enter it himself, the psalmist knew by the Holy Spirit that this prayer would be answered within a few centuries, but that he would not live to see it himself. And in fact, Psalm 90 is a prayer that has been answered. It was answered in the coming of the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The psalmist is right, to God a thousand years are like a day, and God has been waiting from eternity past to redeem us and proclaim his faithful love to us. For those of you who have children or or care for children, do you know how painful it is to withhold your goodness from them in order to discipline uh, your child? Doesn't that hurt you as a parent or a grandparent or or a caretaker? To withhold something good because you want to show your child that they're in danger of losing that good thing in a bigger way if they don't learn how to control their desires and behavior. You can't wait for the discipline to end in order to be reconciled to your child and show them your forgiveness and faithful love. And imagine how infinitely greater God's anticipation was to reconcile his people to himself. All the way through redemptive history from Genesis 3 until the New Testament. In the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus to do that by dying in our place. The Bible says that Jesus came as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice 
for our sins and that through Christ, God has already reconciled us to himself. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins in full and his resurrection from the grave three days later began the process of turning back the effects of the curse in Genesis 3. How? Death Death itself has been defeated for all who belong to Christ for all time. So the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90 has been answered. In verse 12, God gave us the Holy Spirit to teach us wisdom. In verses 13 and 14, God is present with us and offers his steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. Verse 15, for those who trust in Jesus... Though there are effects of the curse that endure, he allows us to participate with him in the process of restoring all things. You and I, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, are ambassadors for God. God making his appeal through us to restore the world and to reconcile all things and people to him. In verse 16, through faith in Jesus, we see him reigning at his Father's side. And through his Holy Spirit, the free gift of salvation goes out to many. And in verse 17, work is still difficult. But the Lord gives endurance and patience with joy in order that it would not be an overwhelming burden but increasingly a gift to ourselves and to the people around us. And for the work of salvation, to which the Lord calls us to join him, nothing, not even the gates of hell, can stop it from moving forward in power. Through the Holy Spirit, we have faith to believe that God is working powerfully in us and that his work one day will become complete. One day, as Tolkien put it in The Lord of the Rings, everything sad is going to come untrue. In the early 20th century, a Reformed theologian named Gerhardus Voss came up with the phrase already to describe this in-between liminal period in which we live. And what he means by already but not yet is that for those in Christ, all of the petitions of prayer, uh, of the prayer rather in Psalm 90, have been answered positively by God. God has already granted them to us, but we have not yet taken possession of them in their fullness. We see aspects of them shine through the darkness and we can enjoy them in part but we don't yet experience those gifts in their fullness. Many of them we grasp by faith. Nevertheless, God invites us to rest in his promises and to live today in the fullness and the freedom of our redemption in Christ. So how might we, re- how might we respond to God's invitation? How might we live well as God's redeemed people? Let me give you just a few ways. Is your life one marked by joy and contentment, or are you often fearful and without hope? If you are often fearful and without hope, then perhaps you'd benefit from finding someone, even someone in this church, to help you learn how to trust in God's promises. It is hard to believe 
that God is faithful to, to love us and care for us and provide for us and heal us. When perhaps you've been praying for it for those things rather for years and you don't see any progress. We need to encourage one another to believe that God is faithful. Do you struggle with bitterness and resentment toward others? Are there people in your life you find it really difficult to forgive? Perhaps you'd benefit from another believer, even someone in in this church, helping you to trust more in God's faithful love for you so that you can share it with others. The only way that we can truly forgive anyone else is to know that we are forgiven. That's the parable of the uh, unforgiving servant that Jesus told. Do you feel like God is far away from you or that he doesn't love you in particular? Or perhaps he loves other people more than he loves you because you've done some, something uh, fatally wrong to forever harm your relationship with him. Perhaps it would be helpful to sit and talk with someone else who experiences God's presence differently so that you can learn to see him and enjoy him more than you do now. Again, that's that that gift of encouragement that the Spirit gives us to to, uh, build one another up in faith. Do you find that you anger easily? Or that you often need to be in control of, of circumstances in your life? Well, maybe it would be wise to spend time with someone else who experiences rest and peace in the Lord's presence and to learn from them how they might trust the Lord with hard things and disappointments that they experience. And note that each of these suggestions comes with an invitation to engage with other believers. And that's because, my friends, I'm not going to say it's impossible because the Lord sometimes works in uh, different and unexpected ways. But the, the main way, the standard way that God works to build up his saints, the way that he makes us hagios, the way that he makes us holy, is that we build one another up. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about uh, the entire body, the entire church working together properly. It builds itself up in love. It becomes more mature. And yes, gathering together on Sunday mornings is part of that. But it's the smallest part of that. The bigger part is engaging with one another outside of this hour and a half on Sunday morning. It's sitting down and being honest with other believers about what you think, what you fear, what you feel, what you've done. And asking you asking them, rather, to help you narrow the gap between what you say you believe and the way that you're actually living your life. That's how we live life well. That's how we become people who increasingly not only trust the Lord, but look more and more like Him. A life well lived, according to what the Lord says in His Word, is that we would become people who are increasingly holy and who are increasingly dedicated 
to being more and more like Jesus. May it be so for us all. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the work of Jesus, which you accomplished on our behalf. Lord, you, you answered this prayer exactly in that you stepped in and did for us something that we were utterly incapable of doing for ourselves. And that is atoning for our sin and healing all of the effects of the curse. So Lord, make us people who want to live that way. Give us faith to believe what is currently so difficult for us to grasp. And give us encouragement, Lord, that we would know how to encourage others and that we would humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the encouragement of others. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we...